Welcome to Last Days. I'm your host, Mike Guy. On this show, I'll walk you through the final chapter in a famous person's life. Each episode, I look at the good, the great, the bad, the batshit crazy. I witness the darkness. I feel the struggle and learn the lessons. I say fare thee well to people we all love, admire, worship, and sometimes loathe. In episode one, we travel the dark, drugged-out corridors of heroin addiction, compulsive eating, and reclusion with the Grateful Dead's brilliant and deeply misunderstood guitarist, Jerry Garcia. For 30 years, Garcia was the Dead's reluctant frontman and very reluctant guru to a nation of hippies, prep school burners, and weekend beatniks. His very early death... In 1995, at the age of 53, was devastating to those who followed him, and yet, to those who knew him best, it was entirely expected. May 1986. In his smoke-filled dressing room at the Cal Expo Amphitheater, 42-year-old Jerry Garcia stands up in a red t-shirt. His hair is wild and greasy, and his beard is unkempt. Garcia takes a bite of a Reuben sandwich and contemplates the 20-ouncer of root beer that his personal roadie, Steve Parrish, has brought him. A camel straight burns in an ashtray. The smell of weed is heavy in the air. Garcia can't hear the 14,000 fans outside, sitting and waiting on the sun-baked fairgrounds lawn. But he knows they're there. After taking a sip of root beer, he leans down and picks up Tiger, the handmade 13-pound number one guitar he's most famous for playing. It has brass fittings and dials, three pickups, and all sorts of electronic wizardry inside. He plays a few scales to warm up his long, spidery fingers, but he already knows what he's going to play. He's going to open with Cold Rain and Snow, a riff on an old murder ballad about a greedy wife who walks all over her man. Garcia is carrying a little extra weight these days. He's carried a little bit more every year since the 70s. Actually, he's well over 300 pounds in climbing. The past couple years have been tough. In 1984, his longtime heroin addiction, which would bedevil him and his friends and family for the rest of his life, had finally come to a head. The band staged an intervention, the first of many, and Garcia kicked the dope. Unfortunately, a few months later, he was busted in Golden Gate Park, where a cop spotted him sitting in a BMW cooking a fine white powder on tinfoil. In his possession were dozens of baggies of cocaine and heroin. Whoops. There was some hell to pay for that. He had to go to some meetings, he got dragged through the headlines... It was all a bit of a bummer for a guy who just wanted to be left alone. Fast forward to this hot May evening in the Central Valley. Garcia is still clean. Well, probably. I suppose that's the irony of the moment. In a couple months, despite having kicked the hard stuff, Garcia would slip into a coma and come closer to the ever after than at any other time in his life. Had he died then... The dead would likely have faded away. Just another footnote of the 1960s. Instead, 
they became a cultural behemoth that remains today, 24 years after Garcia's death, one of the top touring acts to ever have walked the earth. With his trusty tiger slung over his shoulder, Garcia leaves his dressing room and walks behind fellow guitarist Bob Weir to the stage. He's chipper. He's buzzed. He still gets nervous. It's showtime. Back behind his amp, Garcia takes another quick sip from the big gulp and says to Parrish, Hey Steve, see this root beer here? Don't let it spill. Jerry Garcia was the Grateful Dead's brilliant anti-hero guitar hero. Over the course of his 35-year career as a professional musician, his powers grew as a performer to immense heights. He became as close to a shaman as Elvis or Bob Dylan, but his appetites grew also for more music, more drugs, more food, more music, more drugs, more food. This is the story of the last days of Jerry Garcia. When Jerry Garcia died in the summer of 1995, he was basically broke. He didn't leave anything like a will, more a list of vague intentions scratched out on notepads. Deborah Coons, his newlywed third wife, became the executor of his estate, which was hit with $38 million in claims in the months that followed Garcia's death. The claims included bank loans for condos, cash advances from the Dead's publishing company, which he used to dole out loans of his own to struggling friends like John Kahn, the junkie bassist for the Jerry Garcia band. 50 grand here, 100 grand there, it all added up. In the decade and a half after his death, Garcia's estate was hit by a flurry of lawsuits. Jerry's youngest daughter, Keelan, hadn't been taken care of. His Chinese acupuncturist was owed $1,000. His private doctor wanted some cash. And then there was Garcia's second wife, Carolyn Adams, also called Mountain Girl or MG. MG was a merry prankster who also had a daughter with Ken Kesey. In a lawsuit MG filed against Coons and the Garcia estate, she presented the court with a handwritten, unlawyered divorce agreement that she and Jerry scratched out in 1993 so that Garcia could marry Coons. In it, Jerry promised MG $5 million, cut into $250,000 annual payments. The proceedings got ugly. Coons told a reporter that MG was, quote, someone who Jerry had a couple of kids with, hippie style. That's how he thought of it. But Mountain Girl is an extremely aggressive woman. The reality of Jerry's finances were grim. Among his primary assets were some art and a massive comic book collection. After all the lawsuits and claims had been settled, the reality was that one of the estate's largest revenue streams came from a licensing fee to Ben & Jerry's for the Cherry Garcia flavor. Jerry called it his ice cream money. The chaos of his financial life and the pain it inflicted on the people who loved him is classic Garcia. He was a man who fell in love quickly and bailed out of relationships just as fast moving on to the next romance with little or no explanation to the women and children he left behind. He sought success as a musician and reserved his strongest emotions for his music. 
but he was repelled by Deadhead's desire to see him as some sort of prophet. And while his affable demeanor reminded some of a beneficent Buddha, his earthly appetites were extreme and often self-destructive. Jerry himself was completely aware of this side of his personality. He just didn't feel like talking about it, and he didn't feel like defending it to other people. It was his own business. His old friend Laird Grant once said that as long as Jerry had some tang to drink every morning, he was happy. He drank tang every day. Didn't matter if there was fresh-squeezed orange juice in the refrigerator. He'd grab the tang, mix it with tap water, stir, and drink. Garcia grew up on hot dog stands in the Mission District and wino sandwiches and chocolate milk from down on 1st and 3rd Streets. Burgers, french fries, root beer, 7-Eleven, chili dogs, haagen ice cream, packs and packs and packs of cigarettes, marijuana, and finally, there was Persian heroin smoked through a straw from atop a patch of tinfoil. Later in life, Garcia kicked all his bad habits, but not all at once, and never for very long. At one point in 92, when he was living with Manasha Matheson, a pretty yoga instructor 20 years his junior, and the mother of his fourth daughter, he came close to a second diabetic coma. But Matheson saved his life. She used acupuncture and other Eastern medicine to revive him, and Jerry actually became a vegan, more or less. He lost 70 pounds. He even quit cigarettes. But the truth is, there was no way out for Garcia. There was only so much the band could do. There was only so much his family could do. They tried another intervention in the 90s, and that worked for a little while, but you couldn't contain a force as powerful as Garcia. If he was bent on self-destruction, he would self-destruct. And when he did, it would all come to an end. The same powers that elevated Garcia and his band to become an international phenomenon were the very ones that tore him down in the end. July 2nd, 1995. Normally, the Grateful Dead love to play at Deer Creek. It's a 24,000-seat summer shed in an enclosed stage that opens up into a grassy amphitheater. It's well outside of Indianapolis, and it's surrounded by flat cornfields. This has become one of the more profitable venues on the band's never-ending circus act tour. Dead has become the second highest grossing act of the 90s after the Rolling Stones. Since the start of the decade, they've earned $285 million. That's more than a quarter billion dollars. Shifting to wide-open semi-rural sheds like this is part of the reason they're making so much cash. Another part? Deer Creek is far enough from civilization that the fast-growing and increasingly unchill crowds could, in theory, 
stretched their legs without causing too much damage or attracting too much negative attention from the local cops or the press. Today is a picture-perfect July day. Most of the dead's members are piled into a van, taking them from their indie hotel to Deer Creek. The core members are crowded in the bench seats. Garcia and Bob Weir, bassist Phil Lesh, and the two drummers Bill Kreutzmann and Mickey Hart. John Scher, the tour manager, is there. So is their publicist, Keith McNally. The police called Scher earlier in the morning. The news was not good. The summer 95 tour was already a fucking disaster. People were trampled at a show in Vermont, and three were struck by lightning outside RFK Stadium. Violence and crowd control problems have taken up all the psychic space in the dead's heads. The drugged-out parking lot party people seem to outnumber the respectable ticket-holding deadheads. It's a bad balance. The fan problem had grown so serious, it threatened to overshadow the dead's other existential problem. Jerry Garcia was obviously in grave condition. And now, as the band rides to Deer Creek, they learn that someone has called in a threat. At tonight's show, someone in the audience is going to shoot and kill Jerry Garcia while he plays on stage. At first, the band members were incredulous. It seemed impossible. Come on. Who the fuck would call cops and tell them they were going to murder an old hippie? But the police were dead serious. This is pretty new territory, even for a band that has, quite frankly, seen its share of death. Mickey Hart, whose drum kit is right behind Jerry on stage, wonders aloud, Man, what if the guy shoots and misses and hits me? Jerry laughs it off, as Jerry usually does. And when Jerry laughs something off, no matter how serious that something is, there is no voice of reason loud enough in the dead that can talk him down. The show, such as it was on that hot July day, would go on. At least, it would for another week. Meanwhile, Jerry's performance is bottoming out. It had been in general decline for a couple years, since the 94 tour certainly, but really long before that. The drugs, the obesity, the cigarettes, the relentless touring, ultimately all the things that make up being Jerry Garcia were finally taking the shape of the thing everyone feared for so long. On stage, he was a ghost. One night, in the spring 95 tour, Garcia told Kreutzmann the diabetic swelling in his limbs was sometimes so bad he couldn't feel the guitar pick between his fingers. On a few occasions, he'd be a half-step off during a solo, completely unaware of the horrific racket he was making. It was muscle memory gone wrong. Discerning fans, not to mention his bandmates, winced. His whole life, Garcia took pride in his musicianship. He practiced relentlessly. At home, he'd watch TV and pluck scales to infinity. If the dead weren't on the road, he'd fire up the Jerry Garcia band and hit the theater circuit. He wouldn't stop playing. He couldn't stop playing. He also demanded a lot from his bandmates. He applied a perfectionism and dedication that shone through in some studio albums. Working Man's Dead comes to mind. So does American Beauty. Even 1987's In the Dark, the Dead's only top ten album, contains sparks of that old Garcia brilliance. At his peak, I'd say from 74 to 84, though Deadheads will argue this until the end of time, 
Garcia was one of the most fluent American musicians ever to play the guitar. He mainlined the American songbook and developed a style that was weaned on LSD and warped by cocaine, weed, and heroin. The Grateful Dead was the first and most successful punk band that ever there was. They never met a rule they didn't break, a protocol they didn't violate. Their career was the biggest, most prolonged fuck you to the man in the history of popular music. But on this tour, that punk energy was long gone. Jerry Garcia leaned over his guitar like he was about to faceplant on the stage. He would turn his volume pot so low that he disappeared in the mix. He had trouble playing and singing at the same time. He forgot half the lyrics or just didn't feel like singing them. On bad nights, Garcia was a reluctant guest wandering lost at his own party. July 3rd, 1995. Everything about last night's show was bad. The band had to play the whole thing with the house lights on, and the front row of the stage was lined with cops wearing tie-dyed t-shirts over bulletproof vests. Security guys and dead crew members wandered the floor trying to spot a gunman who was looking to kill Jerry Garcia. How surreal is that? Meanwhile, the parking lot scene outside was completely unhinged. When rioters eventually surged up the grassy berm, tore down the fence, and rushed the amphitheater, Weir was in the second verse of the Dylan song, Desolation Row. With all the lights on, the band could see everything. The rushing crowds of gate crashers, the walls coming down, the clouds of tear gas. They could even hear the sound of the police dogs barking. Weir's face was a mask of rage, but he kept on singing. The band was disgusted. This is not what they signed on for. They didn't drag themselves out onto the road, hobbled by drug addiction, hepatitis, divorce, death threats, actual death, and all the baggage that comes with being in the dead for 30 years, just so a bunch of touch-of-gray newcomer yuppies could tear down the scene. And so the band decided to cancel the second night at Deer Creek. Over the next few days, the dead played two nights outside St. Louis. Jerry was on the phone with his doctor, a guy named Randy Smith, and they arranged to check him into the Betty Ford Clinic after the tour ended. There's only a few days left anyway. He can gut it out. After the 1990 summer tour ended, Brent Midland, the dead's supremely talented keyboardist and the linchpin to the vocal harmonies, died at his home in the East Bay. When Midland joined the band in 1979, he was replacing Keith Godshaw, who himself had developed a debilitating junk habit. And so it goes. Midland was tossed into the breach of non-stop touring in the druggiest band in the world. It seems almost inevitable that he would pick up his own drug habit, and he did, and it overwhelmed him on the night of July 26, 1990. While he was home alone playing Nintendo, Brent injected a blend of heroin or morphine with cocaine, overdosed, and died. He was 36 years old. Jerry was devastated by Midland's death. Brent's virtuosity on the keys was such a potent shot of musical adrenaline for the guitarist, 
that he moved himself across the stage so he could stand next to him. In many ways, the band never recovered from Brent's death. His empty keyboard seat was filled by a tandem of part-timer Bruce Hornsby and full-timer Vince Wilnick. You know Bruce because he had a couple hooky pop singles, The Way It Is and Long Valley Road. Even if those tracks aren't to your taste, and they certainly aren't to mine, you have to give Hornsby this. He's a brilliant pianist with a lovely voice. Wellnick was a journeyman. He got the job with the dead because, well, he showed up for the audition. And the band didn't feel like holding auditions. What mattered to them is that he could sing the high harmonies that Brent had carved into stone over the past decade. If the band hired Vince, the thinking went, they wouldn't have to rewrite anything. They could throw the songbook at him and hit the road without rehearsals. And hit the road they did. In the five years after Brent died, the dead earned another quarter billion dollars. The merchandising arm alone employed more than two dozen. The road crew had been with the band for decades and were by far the highest paid crewmen in the business. Dan Healy had run the soundboard since Owsley Stanley built that famous wall of sound in 1974. At Garcia's urging, Healy used the dead as a crucible for technologies and sound amplification. And this tinkering resulted in the modern line array sound system that every club, theater, and stadium uses today. That's the force of Garcia. He was a huge tech nerd. And he was adamant that both the band and the audience deserved the best sound system that money and imagination could conjure. July 5th. Riverport Amphitheater, Maryland Heights, Missouri. The band lay low in St. Louis for Independence Day, but today they released a sharply worded statement to the fans. It was entitled, This Darkness Got to Give. Dear Deadheads, This is the way it looks to us from the stage. Your justly renowned tolerance and compassion have set you up to be used. At Deer Creek, we watched many of you cheer on and help a thousand fools kick down the fence and break into the show. We can't play music and watch plywood flying around endangering people. If you don't have a ticket, don't come. Many of the people without tickets have no responsibility or obligation to our scene. They don't give a shit. They act like idiots. They think it's just a party to get trashed as possible at. We're all supposed to be about higher consciousness, not drunken stupidity. Want to end the touring life of the Grateful Dead? Allow bottle-throwing gatecrashers to keep on thinking they're cool anarchists instead of the creeps they are. We'll never know if the statement had its intended effect, but the bad shit just kept coming at them. At a deadhead encampment just outside the stadium gates, two people OD'd and died. The following night, in the midst of a torrential downpour, a roof collapsed at a campsite at the same location, injuring more than a hundred people. You think Garcia wanted to be the merry leader of this mess? July 9th, 1995, Chicago. That last week on the tour, Garcia kept to himself. The band played two shows under the hot lights at Soldier Field, and the ghost of Jerry returned. His face was a mask of confusion, exhaustion, and indifference. He wanted to be anywhere else. Garcia had spent a lifetime consumed by trying to communicate his love of music to the world. Tonight, he doesn't want to think about anything at all. 
He just wants to get the fuck out of there. In his last recorded interview a couple months earlier, he's at the dead's office in San Rafael. He's so fucked up on heroin that he struggles to keep his head from laying itself down on the countertop. More than a few times, he excuses himself to the kitchen to, quote, look for his keys. Just shy of his 53rd birthday, Garcia looks like an octogenarian. Here on stage in Chicago, he offers up his last live performance. A stagehand named Harry Popkick describes the feeling of watching him. It was a strain seeing Jerry look the way he did. I'd be doing the monitors over by him, and I'd just look away and close my eyes and say, Oh my God, I was waiting for him to fall to his knees. There were times in these last shows when Jerry would emerge from his backstage dressing room wearing a shower cap. He put one on when he was smoking heroin to keep him from setting his own hair on fire. When he was high, he'd forget to take it off, wander onto the stage, and everybody would look around kind of horrified until someone said, Hey Jerry, you're wearing a shower cap on your head. Tonight, in Chicago, the band kicks off with a perfunctory touch of gray. The crowd loves it. The band is just going through the paces. Garcia's solo is a few notes long. He only hits one out of every ten or so. The second set kicks off with a barely there shakedown street. But even with the teleprompter scrolling the words for him, Garcia misses half the lines, hums some others. He stares off blankly for a few bars in the middle of a song. Behind his drum kit, Kreutzmann slams a crash cymbal to bring Jerry back to earth. Hey Jerry, he yells, you're on stage. Ah, thanks Bill, Garcia replied. After the double encore of Black Muddy River and Box of Rain, the band walks off stage and heads for the parking lot where a line of limos is waiting to take them to the airport. There's a sense of relief. It's finally fucking over. Weir passes Garcia, who says, without any sarcasm, always a hoot. Fireworks explode over Lake Michigan, marking the end of the tour for the fans. The band and crew stop and watch quietly before setting off for the airport. Garcia is standing next to Cassidy Law, one of the dead's roadies. He's in strangely high spirits. Hey, this is great, he says to Law. Let's keep going. Let's go for it. As though the calamitous summer tour had never happened. This is perfect, he said. That night, on the flight to San Francisco, Mickey Hart is sitting next to Garcia, who is snoring loudly. I could actually see his heart beating underneath his shirt, Hart says. It was the weirdest thing. I remember thinking, how much more of this can that heart take? So many roads my soul So many roads July 10th, Marin County. Leon, Garcia's longtime driver, picks him up at the airport and delivers him to his wife, Deborah Coons, who was waiting at Garcia's luxurious home in Tiburon, overlooking South San Francisco Bay. Coons is, more or less, Garcia's fourth wife. They'd gotten married in an awkward ceremony just a few months prior though they'd first met in 1977. Coons was not a favorite in the dead world by most accounts. Well, by all accounts. Their first meeting was a memorable one. It was the 1977 tour, and the dead were on a stop in New York City. Garcia ordered hotel room service, and when the cart arrived, Coons popped out from underneath and yelled, Surprise! 
Garcia was not amused. He asked her to leave, and when she didn't, he called Kreutzmann upstairs. Billy showed up at Garcia's room in his bare feet and brusquely, though without violence, escorted her out of the hotel. Coons reappeared a few times over the next couple decades. And when Jerry finally decided to marry her, it was February of 1995. None of his exes were invited to the wedding. In fact, Coons was extremely protective of her relationship with Garcia. In Bill Kreutzmann's book, Deal, he writes, I heard stories of her getting violent when they lived together, but I didn't see any of that. I do recall one time at Bobby's studio when Jerry, Mountain Girl, and Deborah were all in the same room together, and it ended with MG throwing Deborah into the foot-thick studio door. It broke off the hinges. Deborah must have been used to running into thick doors, because when she came out on the road with Jerry, he'd get hotel suites with two separate bedrooms. Kreutzmann claims Garcia made sure his door always had an additional lock on it. In Tiburon, the situation was similar. Garcia and Coons lived in different houses on the property. As a married man, his already pronounced reclusion transformed into an airlock. July 16th, 1995. Back in Tiburon, Garcia woke up just before noon, hopped into his black BMW 7 Series, and drove to the Marin home of his old friend Dave Grisman a mandolin player he'd been playing with off and on since they first met in the parking lot at a bluegrass festival in 1964. Today, the two are recording Jimmy Rogers' Blue Yodel No. 9 for a tribute album that Bob Dylan is putting together. Jerry took a seat on a stool, lit a cigarette, and started strumming quietly. Garcia knew the song inside and out. He'd been playing it in various combos for decades, and had even recorded it a couple times already. On the stand-up bass was Jerry Garcia Band's John Kahn, a kindred spirit to Jerry who had been living with his own long-time junk problem. Grisman strummed the mandolin, Kahn plucked the bass, and Garcia sang. After a few takes, they nailed it. Grisman took a long look at Garcia. He did not look well, but he sounded okay. He even pulled off the yodel. Who knew the guy could yodel? At the end of the session, Grisman got a big bear hug from Garcia. Anyone who ever got a hug from Jerry knew they got something special, Grisman said. He was full of love. That evening, Bruce Hornsby called Garcia at his home just to check in and see how his old friend was doing. Hornsby was surprised when Garcia picked up the phone and Jerry told him he was going to the Betty Ford clinic in the morning. I'm going to do this and this is what needs to happen and I'll be okay, he said. I'll be there for a month or five weeks. He sounded fine, Hornsby said. I was happy for him. I can imagine playing with the old Jerry again. July 17th. Rancho Mirage, California. Jerry checks into the Betty Ford Clinic to get clean. He was supposed to stay there for four weeks, maybe longer. He guts it out long enough to kick the heroin, but that's it. The problem is, when Garcia flushed the opiates out of his system, he felt terrible. All the rest of his physical problems had caught up with him, especially the diabetes and the emphysema. He didn't think the doctors at Betty Ford were going to do enough to help him. So he called his wife at home and said, come and get me. 
August 1st, Jerry Garcia's 53rd birthday. Deborah Coons and Steve Parrish had arrived in time to check him out by noon. He had kicked the physical addiction and didn't care for the spiritual part. So his personal physician agreed to set him up with nutritional supplements, herbs, and homeopathy. I could have given him some medicine for the pain, Dr. Smith said. But the problem was, we didn't want to use narcotics, and many of the other pain medicines might tear up his stomach and intestines. A couple days after checking out of Betty Ford, Jerry relapsed. Probably not because he was jonesing for dope, but because the sobriety had revealed a lot of physical problems he didn't know he had, or at least that he couldn't feel before. Around this time, Garcia bumped into Peter Rowan, his former bandmate from the folky group Olden in the Way, at a record store in Mill Valley. Garcia struck Rowan as upbeat. Rowan didn't realize that Garcia was going to be checking into another rehab, this time at Serenity Knowles. On his way there, he stopped in at John Kahn's house to say hello and shoot the shit. Then he went to a Wendy's drive-thru and bumped into Cameron Sears, one of the Dead's promoters in the parking lot. The guitarist smiled, waved, and drove on. Coons dropped Jerry off at the rehab, then went home while he got situated. And she returned that night and took him to a quiet dinner, just the two of them, at an Italian restaurant in Mill Valley. Jerry twirled pasta in his fork. The two didn't speak very much. A couple of fans passed by to say hello and pay their respects. Garcia obliged with a smile, but little more. He paid the check, left a 100% tip, and got into the passenger seat as Coons drove him back up the hillside to Serenity Knowles to his fifth and final rehab. That night, Garcia awoke once, just after midnight, to use the bathroom. The attendants asked if he needed anything. He grabbed an apple from the pantry, smiled at them, and went back to bed. They can hear him snoring from down the hall. At around 4.30 in the morning, one of the attendants noticed the snoring had stopped. When they turned on the light, they found Jerry Garcia lifeless in his bed, holding the apple in his four-fingered hand. There was a big smile on his face. Jerry Garcia, the Grateful Dead guitarist who kept the counterculture of the 1960s rocking and rolling right into the 90s, died today in California. He was 53. Garcia was found dead at a drug rehabilitation center reportedly of natural causes. The aftermath of Jerry Garcia's death was predictably cataclysmic. Though he'd been more or less a recluse for the past five years, Garcia was the sun king at the center of a crowded solar system. For the fans, it was nothing less than an apocalypse. The heat of their grief was not at all that different from the adulation that Garcia himself found so suffocating. Just as his life was their life, his death was also theirs. Even today, you get the feeling that people haven't quite moved on. On August 14th, the band hosted a public memorial at Golden Gate Park, 
Of course, Dennis McNally, the band's publicist, had to remind fans there would be no, quote, specific ceremony and no live music of any sort by the Grateful Dead or anybody else. It was just to keep the fans from tearing the park to pieces. Garcia's funeral was held in the ritzy Belvedere neighborhood in Sausalito. It was an open casket ceremony. Garcia was laid to rest in a black t-shirt, sweatpants, and a windbreaker. It was a ghastly approximation of a man who composed thousands of songs and played exactly 2,314 shows as the frontman of the Grateful Dead. More than 2,000 of those were recorded. The band members were all there, and they crowded around the coffin in a truly awkward display of forced religiosity. They grasped for things to say, knowing the Grateful Dead's journey had truly and finally, inevitably come to an end. They were all going to have to go their separate ways after this. Phil Lesh, the band's co-founder, said, I wish we had a battery because we'd kickstart you, old friend. Billy Kreutzman tapped Garcia's t-shirt and asked, How you doing, brother? But it was an empty gesture. The drummer wasn't interested in the dead. When he stood up, he said, I love you, Jerry. And he meant that. A lot of Garcia's friends were there, though not all of them were allowed in. Hornsby was, so was Bill Walton, the basketball player and longtime dead superfan. Bob Dylan was there, and he offered a subdued eulogy to one of the few contemporaries he truly respected. Ken Kesey, carrying a redwood sapling as a fumbling theatrical prop, said a few words. So did Kreutzmann, Lesh, Hart, and Weir. To cap it off, Garcia's writing partner and old friend Robert Hunter read a 58-line poem titled An Elegy for Jerry. It ended... So I'll just say I love you, which I never said before, and let it go at that, old friend. The rest you may ignore. Thanks for listening to this episode of Last Days. I'm your host, Mike Guy. I'm also the writer, producer, editor, musical composer, and performer, and provider of strong coffee. On the next episode, I look at the last days of Elvis Presley, the king, and one of the most poorly mythologized and deeply troubled performers ever to walk the American stage. 